Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host for today, Anne Wenner-Strand, and I'm very pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Jennifer Kunst. Dr. Kunst is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified psychoanalyst in private practice in Pasadena, California, where she provides in-depth psychoanalysis and psychotherapy to adolescents and adults. She is a senior faculty member at the Psychoanalytic Center of California in Los Angeles, where she is chair of the Continuing Education Committee. She's past chair of the Curriculum Committee, and she teaches courses on the work of Melanie Klein. In addition, she is an adjunct associate professor at the Graduate School of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, where she has taught doctoral-level courses in psychoanalysis and psychological testing for 15 years. Her book, which we'll be discussing today, is called Wisdom from the Couch, Knowing and Growing Yourself from the Inside Out, and it was published in June 2014 by Consortium Central Recovery Press. Uh, she also writes a blog on the Psychology Today website called the Head Shrinker's Guide to the Galaxy. And for those of you who are not familiar with this blog, you should definitely check it out. It's a beautiful little island in the vast sea of information that is Psychology Today. Um, her blog posts have names like understanding the mysteries of the unconscious and psychological change happens over time. Um, and these are perspectives which are quite familiar to our listening audience, but may seem, you know, sort of almost countercultural to the greater public. So I, I urge you all to check out that, um, that blog. And anyway, I'm delighted to welcome Jennifer to the podcast today. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Anne. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for being here. Um, first of all, I wanted to profoundly thank you <laughs> because your book, um, I've studied Klein, and I, I'm certainly not a Kleinian myself, but I have studied enough of it and been frustrated um, trying to understand some of the concepts, and I felt like your book really helped me get her in a whole new way, in a very enlivened way. Um, so I'm really kind of excited to share this with our listening audience because I think they will have that experience as well. Yes, I I think that's one of the main reasons that I wrote the book, that uh, the ideas of Klein, I think, are so misunderstood and so difficult to access. And through teaching and my clinical work, I was getting a lot of feedback about having kind of a knack for bringing those ideas to life, both explaining them and also making emotional contact with them, which I think is so vital if you're going to really get them in your gut. And right. so um, it's it's a, such a delight to hear that that came through to a colleague yeah. um, that, it, that it brought the ideas to life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've certainly, um, you know, 
sort of sat with supervisees and students myself who, um, you know, cannot really make heads or tails of it or don't really understand how it would apply to their actual clinical lives and their understanding of patients on an emotional level. So I thought that was really valuable about the book. And I should say to the listeners that um, this is a a self-help book. Would you call it that, Jennifer? I I call it an intelligent self-help book. Okay. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, you say that it is a book about the life of the mind and how the mind works in reality, both the reality of inner life and the realities of external life. Um, can you say a little bit more about that and sort of where the, the, the specific germ came to write this book? Sure. You know, I think uh, a lot of people, like the average Joe and Jane on on the street, uh, think that most of life has to do with outside life, their relationships with other people, work, uh, physical health, um, how they cope with difficult experiences in life. And so they turn to the outside, thinking that the outside is both the source of the trouble and the solution. Mm -hmm. And even though for us as uh, psychoanalysts, we understand that what's inside profoundly influences our experience of the outside, I think it's really a big um, surprise to the ordinary person that sort of, you know, as the old saying goes, what you see is not what you get, Mm -hmm. that what's happening inside of us, our what Klein called the internal object world, profoundly influences our experience of outside. So you've got to go inside in order to um, to make changes on the outside. And even though that seems like a very simple idea to us, I think it's actually a very revolutionary idea. Mm -hmm. And what makes um, my book hopefully uh, go deeper and have a a more uh, lasting effect uh, on the average reader. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what was the audience that you had in mind, actually? Sort of a mix of um, the general reader who is a, a kind of a thinking, more serious reader. So those who are reading um, uh, books about spirituality, books mm-hmm. about personal development, um, not sort of the pop psychology, you know, seven steps to a happier right. life type exactly. of reader, yeah. um, but someone who likes to, um, the, the image I have is, you know, you sit with your morning coffee for your uh, morning meditation and reflection time or with your glass of wine in the evening mm-hmm. and want to reflect on core values in life, on your personal journey. It's that kind of reader. Right. Might be a mental health professional, uh, might be um, a student, um, but it also could be a parent, a friend. You know, um, I think there's a great need for uh, a book that uh, therapists can recommend to their clients and their patients that um, gives them an opportunity to sort of have another session on their own during the week. Yeah. And I think uh, reading a chapter of my book feels a little bit like that, about having a time to to sit and meditate and digest and reflect on your life and maybe what you're working on in your own therapy. Yeah. I, that struck me that way as I was reading your book that it would be something I would want to recommend to um you know, people I'm seeing or, you know, even the parents of, um, you know, some of the adolescents or kids that I work with, because I think one of the things that's really hard 
or at least personally I've struggled with this um, to get across is what the process of a more psychodynamic treatment looks like and feels like and consists of. Um, And I think that there aren't that many resources out there to help people understand that process if they're not already familiar with it. Right. And that are accessible, that are not the kind of, um, you know, PEP archive articles, ivory tower sorts of articles. And um, what I feel proud of about my book is I think it's a very meaty book, but it's also very down-to-earth and accessible. I use very little jargon. Those mental health professionals who read it will see Melanie Klein's The Depressive Position, Paranoid Schizoid Position, Splitting and Projective Identification, the death instinct, all of those fancy right. concepts, but without using the jargon. Right, right. It's like a translation, actually, is how I would describe the book. Oh, um, I love that. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really does read that way. Um, in terms of your process, because I've talked to other analysts who are writing books for more of a lay audience, mm-hmm. and I'm always fascinated by what the actual sort of process for the, for the, as a writer, what, what that looks like. Did you work with an editor? Did you, um, you know, I worked with, I spoke with Claudia Louise who sort of had a producer almost for her, for her book. And I'm just wondering if this was something that was done more in, um, you know, like a, a solitude type of project for you. Right. This is a, was a very personal project. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't set out to do like an outreach project for psychoanalysis. Uh, it, I think it may turn into that, but really want this is sort of a bucket list kind of book mm. that it comes out of uh, a passion that I have for helping people go deeper in life. And, you know, one of the things that was on my heart is the, the deeper I get into my work as a psychoanalyst, the fewer lives I touch. Mm. Because you can only see, you know, a, a, a small number of people because, you know, I'm seeing them four or five times a week for many, many years. And so the, the, um, the, the reach of my work is very limited so that I wanted to, um, to, to try to reach out further. And uh, what I did was uh, I came up, I did, yeah, I did, I'm a little researcher, so I get mm-hmm. on the internet and I find out, you know, how do you publish a book? Right. And I didn't want to self-publish the book. It was um, part of my bucket list is I wanted to uh, have a traditional publisher who would market the book and it have it uh, have a little bit more legitimacy. And right. so um, I discovered that the way you sell a book these days is you write a book proposal and you get an agent and the agent pitches it to a publisher and, you know, then there you're done. Of course, it's right. almost <laughs> impossible to publish a book in uh, the 21st say, century. Right. Without and, uh, accumulating tons of rejection slips. Oh, and, exactly. Yeah. And um, I went to a writer's conference up in San Francisco. It was a wonderful conference called uh, Writing for Change. Hmm. And it was a nonfiction writer's conference. And we were we were all very depressed uh, at about day two in understanding how hard it is for someone who is not famous already right. uh, to get a real book deal. 
And what was uh, impressed upon us was that you have to have an online platform, meaning you have to have readers already lined up to buy your book uh, in order to get an agent and then a publisher. Mm. And I have to say, I was very resistant uh, to the idea of having a blog. Yeah, I had to really wrestle um, in my own uh, analytic work about becoming a more public figure. Mm-hmm. You know, we're so private. I'm so private. I don't want um, to have a lot of information about me widely available to my patients. Right. Well, that leads me very beautifully into my next question, which was, you know, because we have talked about this on the podcast, um, you know, the idea of the analyst revealing herself, whether it's in a book or online or um, in a website or even like your Psychology Today profile or, you know, all the ways that people have of finding us or learning about us, which are, are, you know, not really traditional, I guess. Um, But it's it's a new world and, you know, we're all sort of um, learning as we go. But I was curious because... um, I found some of the personal material in your book, um, particularly regarding your religious upbringing and your history and Mm -hmm. spiritual beliefs, writing about that and knowing that that was also going to be part of your persona. Um, What was that like for you? It was challenging. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I made a decision that um, I would only write and share about my personal life, what I was prepared for my patients to read. Right. And that uh, turned out to be a very good guide for me because then I could kind of stand behind whatever I wrote and I expected, uh, this isn't entirely true, but I expected that all of my patients would discover my blog and discover my book and read it. Right. And that then became the kind of the container, the the boundary uh, for uh, what I would write about myself. And uh, I think it served me well. It 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 it, it does uh, flatten us a little bit as analysts to be so uh, blank screen and so yeah. rigid about the sharing of our private right. information. You know, and I do. I share a little bit about my my childhood and about my upbringing. And I thought to myself. You know, everybody has a childhood. Yeah. This should not be news to our patients, right. <laughs> you know, that we had Hopefully. a mother and a father and siblings right. and, you know, learned how to ride a bicycle and uh, went to school and had experiences with teachers. And so I share a few select stories about that. Right. I mean, I dedicated uh, the book to my mother who passed away mm-hmm. um, five or six years ago. And that was a very personal thing. But I think it also makes me a three-dimensional person. And while that challenges the psychoanalytic frame with my patients. I think it's also grist for the mill. And right. uh, it w- took some courage, I have to, to say. Um, and yeah. many, many hours of um, trying to sort out what approach I would take. And I decided, you know, that I would share uh, anything. What I shared, I'd be uh, uh, able to take up with my patients and that I really spoke very little Mm-hmm. about my patients. Right. That was kind of another I noticed uh, that, boundary actually. that I drew. I noticed that you um, 
use a lot of parable and story and fable kind of, you know, you have the Garden of Eden, which I want to talk about later because that was a fascinating um, way of illustrating some Kleinian concepts. Yeah. Um, but I noticed that you didn't, you didn't do sort of patient vignettes um, as much. And I didn't miss it. I'm just saying I noticed that was probably a choice you made. A very intentional choice. Right. Um, to respect and honor the privacy of my patients and also um, to convey to the general public that the process of psychoanalysis is a very private one in which uh, confidentiality is um, respected and honored. And that's not a criticism of other people who do share case studies. Right. But I thought in a book for general population, if I could find a way to bring it to life without case studies, that's the way I wanted to go. Yeah. And I think there were a couple of times where you described someone with, you know, that was definitely not a, a sort of a specific picture of a person, but, you know, sort of a general, a general picture to get the reader to relate to what the topics were. And I, I thought that was really effective. Yeah, a um, little bit, a, a little bit little of bit. A share, sharing of a dream mm-hmm. or a, re, a transference reaction that could be from any one of my patients or from somebody else's patient. You know, it's not a specific person. Right, right. And was there, I mean, has there been any... Um, with the blog and the the book, and I don't know, did the blog precede the book, or was that it, sort of simultaneous? Um, yeah, it became clear I had to have a blog if I was going right. to uh, publish. And I love and your so title, I, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the Head Shrinker's Guide <laughs> yes. to the Galaxy. Yeah. Very familiar with the with the books, you know, that you you got the title from. So yeah, that's right, a, right. an awesome yeah. title. Yeah. Um, so was there any repercussion for, I guess everything is, you know, what we're saying, it's grist for the mill, it's all part of the work. Um, do you, did you find that patients brought um, material in um, from your blog or asked about your book or f- had feelings about it? Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, the, the one thing about my book that my patients have told me and that um, those who know me, who have read the book, have told me, is it just sounds like I'm talking to them. Yeah. So my patients were not surprised, you know, by anything in the book except maybe some of the personal, um, right. you know, sharing of my personal journey. And uh, that then I think just became grist for the mill. But it hasn't been a problem at all. And in fact, I think has... Uh, kind of humanized me a little bit, which right. I think in the end is a good thing. Yeah. And they get to have the experience of a uh, exclusive possession of you when they're reading the book, if they feel you're speaking to them. So right. That's, right. Um, Play it in. Is yeah. How I right. Think of it. Right. Um, did you want to say anything about your professional development? Um, you did say in the book that you, your family was evangelical. Um, you, chose psychoanalysis as a career. And I, I was just curious as I read that, like if you were comfortable saying anything about how you got to that professionally. Sure. I had actually um, had the plan to become a Presbyterian minister. Hmm. That was my kind of childhood trajectory. And when I went um, to college at Wheaton College, I had thought I would um, go to seminary. But my third year in 
college, I did an internship that was required for my psychology undergraduate degree mm-hmm. at Philhaven Hospital in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I worked in a day treatment center and basically hung out with uh, severely mentally ill mm-hmm. folks in the day treatment center there. And I just loved it. Mm-hmm. I had never uh, worked with that kind of population before. I never really had a picture of what a psychologist was, even though I was doing a psychology degree. And that experience really uh, changed the course, the, you know, the direction of my uh, professional life. And that sent me out to Fuller Seminary where I could do a theology degree and a clinical psych doctorate mm-hmm. degree. And then at some point I um, decided that um, mania was not in my best interest, right. <laughs> so I should pick one career. <laughs> and I picked psychology and then through my own personal therapy um, found myself in analysis with an analyst and sort of the rest is history. Yeah. The rest is history. Thanks for talking about that. Um, So I was, I was reading your blog, as you can tell. And in um, one of your blog posts, you wrote, I recognize that my profession sometimes has a questionable reputation and I'm trying to restore its good name. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think we're trying to do that here at our podcast. Um, And we've talked about the, the sort of, the question, why, why does psychoanalysis have a PR problem? What could you say more about that? (laughs) Well, I think it has this kind of removed elitist, um, only for the rich, right. Um, a, a luxury and indulgence, um, something that's outmoded and outdated, uh, kind of reputation. And, you know, frankly, some of that's deserved. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it, um, it's going to require a younger generation of analysts to kind of maintain the, um, you know, it's sort of don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, hold right. on to the core principles that make our discipline so valuable, but also to uh, reform it in a way that makes it more applicable um, to to folks in the 21st century. And I do think you can do both. Yeah, I do. I definitely do, too. Yeah, there was another um, post, I think it was on Psychology Today, called we need a practical psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, my my work is sort of in line with that, right. to appreciate the value of the unconscious, um, but not to keep it, you know, in, in a museum. Right. Yeah. Um, you were also talking about, and I think it was the same blog or maybe a different one, about um, giving a talk in London. Yes. And you were, I don't know if you were promoting your book, but that sounded like a really interesting um, circumstance that you were invited or you were, you got involved in this, this sort of um, lecture series. Right. And you said in your blog that you were surprised by what happened there. Do you want to Say what happened? Sure. Well, my book came out in June of 2014, and I went over to London to attend the Melanie Klein Trust Conference, which just happened to be that same week. Mm -hmm. So I was um, uh, trying to find some opportunities to promote my book, and I came up across this, um, you know, meetup.com. Yeah. 
there's a meetup.com group in London led by this fellow, Matt Kendall, called Interesting Talks London. And he's got like 8,000 members. It's amazing. And he does um, two or three talks a week um, inviting uh, speakers in the area of um, self-help, psychology, entrepreneurship, hypnosis, dating, all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And the he's got a small venue that seats about 70 people. So he's fill, he's sold out for all of the events because he has so many people um, you know, that are interested in a small venue. And so he was very excited to have, you know, the psychoanalyst from Los Angeles come. And he insisted that um, if it's a two-hour uh, talk, but that there be small group exercises, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, is not, um, <laughs> right. Not the first thing I, I am get excited about. I can talk for two hours, but you know, small group exercises is is not the first thing I think of as being exciting. Right. But I, I yielded and um, had a couple of exercises, and the first one was, um, you know, tur- turn to your neighbor and talk about what evidence do we have in everyday life that there is an unconscious. Mm. And the room erupted wow. in electricity. I, I'm. I I have goosebumps now just telling yeah. you about it. So I will remember this moment for my lifetime to, to be with a group of 70 regular folk who are coming out to a meeting at, you know, seven o'clock on a weeknight because mm-hmm. they want to grow themselves. Yeah. And um, the responses that they had, the energy that they had uh, was really palpable. And they were uh, so receptive to my book and my ideas and uh, it was really a wonderful way to launch my um, my book tour and my uh, kind of experience of getting these ideas out to really my audience, which is the public. Right. I mean, it sounded like it also really validated your ideas and you tapped into something that everyone everyone has but can't quite maybe talk about or doesn't know how how to put words to. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. That video, it was actually videotaped. So that videotape is online. Uh huh. If anybody wants to try to track it down. Right. Yeah. It was very, it was very cool. Website. I just, I, and I wasn't even aware of that series in London. I thought that was, was really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so, um, so maybe at this juncture, I'm sort of looking at the clock and knowing I've got a lot of ground I want to cover. Um, the, the book itself, um, just getting into the, the more Kleinian aspects of the book, you know, I was reading the book and I was definitely engaged, but right around chapter nine, and I, maybe I should tell the listeners how many, I think there are 12 chapters in total. Um, chapter nine, 10 and 11 really drew me in, um, Mm -hmm. as a clinician, as, um, someone who, as I said before, has studied Klein, but, um, definitely this was a very creative way of, of, understanding some of the concepts. So I was wondering if I, we could sort of go through those three chapters together a little bit and you could expand on some of the things that you said because I think it would be um, really great for the listeners. Sure. Uh, maybe first I could just um, give a like a quick overview of yes. the chapters that come before. Oh, yes, definitely. Thanks. Because the book really kind of follows a Freud, Klein, Beyond a trajectory. Mm-hmm. And uh, so 
the hardest chapter actually to write was chapter one, which is uh, on the unconscious life of the mind mm-hmm. to really introduce the reader to what it means to have an unconscious and its effect on the psyche. And then I go uh, on from there to talk a little bit about the life and the death instincts mm-hmm. and about uh, our fundamental resistance to change, which I think is a very surprising idea for most people. You know, most mm-hmm. people think, you know, if I, if I want to change, then that's, uh, really all I want. Right. And the fact is we want to change and we don't want to change. Right. And I mean, so I, in the cultural, you know, the sort of cultural mandate is that you can change even if you don't want to. There's no, um, there's, you know, no acknowledgement of ambivalence. It's just not, right. a, it's not something that um, we have in the culture. So yes, I thought that was, was really important to, to talk about right in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so everything is kind of working toward um, these ideas in chapter 9, 10, and 11, just talking a little bit about projective identification without using the term, uh, talking about uh, omnipotence and mania, which I mm-hmm. think is in American culture particularly right. problematic. You know, bigger is better. Uh, we feel so ashamed about our smallness. Mm-hmm. And so I was just trying to identify those and kind of create a uh, context for later talking about um, the depression of position, right. uh, developing a mind of one's own, and then on what I think is Klein's really most important contribution, which is about um, a, a love, guilt, and reparation. Right, right, which is from the, I think, the, her paper, 1937. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so chapter nine I wrote in my note here, are we talking about the depressive position? Because that's what it seemed like you were illustrating um, without calling it that. And I thought that was really fascinating. Right. It's called Everyone is Welcome at the Table right. uh, on Balance. And so it's really about, um, it is about the depressive position and the ways that we prefer to get rid of unwanted parts of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so everyone is welcome at the table is the idea that all of the aspects of ourselves, um, the, the grown-up parts, the baby parts, the loving, the hating, the ashamed, the guilty, the creative, the aspiring, the envious, you know, all of those aspects of ourselves um, are, are welcome, valuable members of our internal family. And so that, that essentially, I think, is what the depressive position is all about, mm-hmm. that we, we, we're not always a happy family. We're an internal family that has attention as well as harmony, but that that's really um, as good as it gets in life and uh, actually a pretty great thing because mm-hmm. that kind of inner dynamic tension uh, is part of what makes us feel alive. Mm-hmm. Right. You, your quote is in the very beginning, aggression and desire, envy and gratitude, hope and dread are roommates in the inner world. And I, I yeah. That, that was a great, <laughs> a great I, way I like to, that. That's yeah. Good. Very good. Very good. It's good to hear it said back to you too. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and the task of psychological development is to get these opposing parts of oneself in dialogue with one another. Um, if we accept that we cannot have it all, we have a better chance of enjoying what we actually have. 
Yeah. I really, to me, that sort of is what I would put on my psychoanalytic t-shirt, as I've said before. Uh-huh. That's great. That's great. <laughs> um, and that it is the depressive position. I think, uh, you know, in studying Klein, and again, I'm not an expert, but um, the term depressive position is interesting and it can be confusing to people because it's actually what we're striving for. Right. It, it's in a way, it's an unfortunate uh, name uh, because people think it's about being depressed, um, but it is this kind of inner harmony that has a slightly depressed tinge to mm-hmm. it, and that's reality. Right. You know, that we're talking about limitations, accepting our lives and ourselves and our loved ones as we are, the reality of loss and death. You know, it's, that is a little bit depressing, um, but it's, it's also... It's depressing, but it's a relief. <laughs> exactly. It's a relief it provides, uh, because it frees us. Right. It provides relief. Yeah. You know? Um, So then you move into chapter 10. Um, The subtitle is on uh, on having a mind of one's own. And you say that what is really meant by maturity is the ever-evolving process of developing a mind of one's own. And then you quote... um, Donald Meltzer. And can I read the quote? Because I, I, love, I, quote, yeah. I love it too. The paradox remains, and I ha- have to say, I had to read it a number of times, but I, I got it. The paradox remains that the best aspect of the mind is beyond the self and the self must evolve in its relation to its internal objects through, and I added the word proper dependence, mm-hmm. ripening to obedience and ending as the acceptance of inspired independence. Um, And then I'm to tell the listeners that you break that quote down and use that sort of as the basis of the chapter describing what proper dependence is, what ripening to obedience, what's meant by that and what inspired independence is. And and you also have a very humorous way of talking about these things. And you're asking the, the readers if they're hyperventilating when (laughs) they're (laughs) obedience, what are you talking about? Ripening to obedience. And then you, so maybe you could take us through that a little bit. Yes, sure. I I think, I I don't know if this is uniquely American, but I I do think we want to get right to the independence part. Right. (laughs) We're going to skip over the other. And so that the idea of dependence as the starting point for growth is uh, counterintuitive and and I think makes us um, uncomfortable. I I have had many patients say, well, isn't the whole point for me to get independent? Mm -hmm. And the link that I make and Meltzer makes, I think, very clearly is that the the way to grow into dependence is to first find a a good mom and dad to rely upon, um, to to feed from, to learn from. And uh, without that basic foundation, uh, independence is false and mm-hmm. on weak footing. Or sort of pseudo-independence. Exactly, or like the Winnicott, Winnicott false, false self, self right? False kind self. of idea. Yeah. And so, um, you know, for me as an analyst, um, helping people get into to what we out here in L.A. call, the, call a proper feeding relationship right. mm-hmm. can take years um, because uh, putting ourselves in a position of dependence means recognizing our smallness and also dealing with envy yeah. that uh, we need from someone else uh, the good stuff mm-hmm. and that we do not possess it ourselves, right. which is a very painful reality um, to work through. 
Right, and and we can feel like aggression and be scary for people. Mm -hmm. Right. But when we can put ourselves in the position of dependence, that then takes us to the next phase, which is uh, the ripening to obedience, which I liken to, you know, sitting at the feet of the master. Mm. And we, we all know that as a part of psychoanalytic training for those candidates who are listening, you know, you're in the, uh, hopefully the ripening um, to obedience phase of studying the craft, studying from the masters, taking in their technique. And it's when you have that technique internalized that you're able to then separate and make it your own. And as one of my supervisors used to say, to to stand um, on the the shoulders of your parents so you can see farther than they could see. Right. Which is the the inspired independence. Right. And I have to say, that is if you're in a good enough institute. (laughs) You know, (laughs) where where that, I just have to say, where that... um, And I'm also thinking as you're talking about the art world, the dance world and other, um, I come from a dance background prior to Uh becoming a therapist. And, you know, there definitely is an importance on, you know, learning your technique, learning your skill, and then sort of, you know, going from, you can't really... Um, differentiate unless you have that. Um, but it, it's also important to acknowledge that those have to be trustworthy um, figures. That right. And I mentioned that a little bit. That um, you know, obedience has gotten a bad rap. Right. And I'm not recommending you know obedience to um, an abusive right. master right. Uh, or teacher. That it the the key is to really to find mentors and parents and analysts and therapists that um, do uh, operate out of uh, a desire to grow you, not a desire to shape you into their own image. Right. And that's a fine line and certainly true at many institutes. And of course, um, mine is imperfect too. (laughs) Um, And then, so the ripening to obedience and then inspired independence. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I used in the, the beginning of that the, the example of um, at some point it, it becomes time for us to have our, our bar mitzvah, our bat mitzvah, to take our vision quest, to go out on our own and to take what we've been given and make something out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you say, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm recalling this correctly, but I think this was the part of the book where you talked about parenting um, and the, you know, how painful and how difficult it is and how um, fortified a parent needs to feel internally to allow that process to flower. Yes. And the child, would you say some more about that? Well, I I think that uh, parents have a great responsibility in helping their children uh, in this last phase of inspired independence and these days, especially with the sort of uh, helicopter parent mm-hmm. kind of um, model that um, we've sort of, this pendulum has swung in the other yeah. direction of kind of over-involved parents, I think it, it makes it a very challenging task for parents to let their children go. Yeah. And uh, I th- actually, I think a lot of psychoanalytic work with uh, patients who are parents is around this very topic. Yeah. Uh, of of being able to 
um, let their children go enough so that they can try and fail. And as Melanie Klein said, um, to become background objects mm. available if needed. Right. But in the background so that the, the adult child or, you know, growing child can uh, find their wings and, and make their way. Right. And so, so I many, think it's very, very challenging. It's challenging. It's very complicated, um, especially if that parent had a sort of a neglectful experience, you know, more of right. com- coming from a background of neglect or trauma um, to have enough kind of the inner goods to be able to do that is very difficult. I mean, I, I see that in my practice a lot. Yes. You know, um, so you also say here, separation is necessary for the child to overcome their deep attachment to the parent. He must break the bond and the parents must suffer it to keep the bond strong. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. That it's such a, a gift to a child to let them rebel and to be there. And to be there. Uh, If they need you while they're rebelling. Oh, yeah. It's it's kind of like being in the negative transference with patients. Yes, it is. It's being the bad object and surviving. Yeah. And being, and not holding a grudge, being available um, because they will need us again. Right. Right. It's, yes, it is challenging. Um, so maybe just in the interest of time, and I'm looking here, um, as we, as we come to the last portion of our interview here, Jennifer, chapter 11, I really wanted to give you some time to talk about this because this is where you, um, you really sort of hit it home that what Melanie Klein is all about is love. Right. Love and I, hate. That's what I want to have on my T-shirt. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because people, I think generally, I mean, psychoanalysts do not, um, would not say that. <laughs> I, right? They I, would I say do. Melanie Klein is about hate. Right. right? Hate in the breast and the, uh, you know, but yeah, but you right. really do put that um, forward and it makes so much sense to say the model of her model of the mind is all about love and the jumping in process of falling in love and the idealization of the love object and the inevitable disappointments and the working through of that. Um, it's just beautifully written. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit. Sure. Okay. Uh, the chapter 11, it, it's the title is, It's Always Broken, So We Always Have to Fix It, mm. on, on Love, Guilt, and Reparation. And I think if you read Klein, um, especially if you teach Klein, which I do, and you read her papers, as I do over and over again in preparation for teaching, it, it's a very clear trajectory she has that the, the working through of our relationships with others and with ourselves is toward internal harmony, balance, integration, synthesis that ultimately is about love. And I think she was a very passionate person, a mm. uh, lonely person, a uh, person who had to... A lot of loss. A lot of loss life. and a lot of um, conflict, uh, even with uh, her right? children mm-hmm. and her colleagues. And I think she really had a heart to try to understand how we can uh, accept the loss to grieve the limitations, our own and others, and still be in loving connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, that's really, I think, is the high point of her model and, and in a way the high point of my book. And 
I use the example, I think, I'm looking at my book here. It's just where, yeah, about, this is where you um, talk Adam about and the, Eve. Oh, well, Adam and Eve, but you also talk about the Velveteen Rabbit, which right. is a great, a great right. story. Yeah, er, that, the Velveteen Rabbit is earlier in the book, um, but about the, that kind of um, depressive position love. Oh, right, you know, right. Where, where our eyes are rubbed off. Right. <laughs> We're yeah. finally real. Yeah. Yeah. No, the gar- but, yes, the Garden of Eden story to sort of illustri- illustrate... Um, the the idealization and the, the the coming to terms with the loss and disappointment. I thought that was a very interesting illustration. Yeah, trying to recast that story because you know the I think the way we traditionally understand it, you know, whether we're from a faith tradition or or it's just a you know a cultural story, is that uh, the world was supposed to be an ideal place mm-hmm. where everybody gets along and there's no pain or or difficulty. And what I want to suggest is looking at at that story not as a way of how things um, should have been. But how things are, that that um, all along, uh, even in that story, there is um, brokenness, competitiveness, separateness, uh, envy, guilt, love, provision. You know that mm-hmm. it's all there, and um, that we're on a path, I think, toward being in relationship with one another in the presence of our brokenness. And uh, trying to mend it is a very deep expression of love. You know, when we're all shiny and perfect and everything's ideal, there's no love there. Right. And for me, uh, love, uh, even in the presence of the brokenness, is kind of what makes life meaningful and valuable mm-hmm. uh, and uh, has that kind of depth to it, which I, I hope to, to convey. Yeah. I think the... Um the part that most people sort of take away from the Garden of Eden story, whether they have, a, you know, or they know that from studying the Bible or just from it being a, a part of the culture is the shame piece, you know, that yeah. they, the sort of super ego aspect, which is that you did something wrong and now you're going to be punished. Right. But you're telling a much more fully fleshed out, evolved um it was just very interesting. Well, you could even take that story, uh, that Garden of Eden story, as a um, proper dependence, ripening to obedience, leading to inspired independence kind of story. Mm-hmm. I mean, they did eat the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right. You know, in a way, you could see that as an effort to become independent. Uh, it may have been in rebellion, uh, but it led to um, a lot of growth and um, some pain too, mm-hmm. which is life. That's life, right. Yeah. And it seems that in your final chapter where you're sort of um, giving the reader um, and especially the lay reader, the general reader, uh ideas. It's not, and I, I don't want to portray this as like the, here are the steps you now take at all. Mm-hmm. You, you call them guiding stars. Right. And that really came, the, the idea to have a culminating chapter like that came from my clinical work that so many times my patients are asking me, how do I know I'm on the right path? Right. How do I know that the way I'm thinking about things is a healthy path? And so I thought I would uh, kind of list some of the ways we know about that, right. whether it's living a more um, honest life, living 
in the world in a way that works rather than how we, often we do it, which is undermining ourselves and sabotaging ourselves. Right. And then the last uh, being h- how do we find a way toward a more meaningful life, uh, not just a life that works uh, or a life of you know basic um, good values, but a life that um, uh, makes us feel full in our hearts in terms of meaning and satisfaction. And I think it, it is a very uh, Kleinian way, as well as probably all all uh, great philosophical traditions mm-hmm. have this idea that the most meaningful life is one found in generosity. Mm, right. I was surprised to hear that coming from Klein. Really? Um, well, yeah. just that it wasn't. It was never illustrated to me that way in my own studies. But that um, the model defined as generosity that springs from gratitude. Right. I mean, her her culminating paper in her work is the Envy and Gratitude paper, okay. and it's a long paper, maybe sixty pages, and she really talks about gratitude being the wellspring of uh, of a happy life, mm-hmm. and that that it's when we feel grateful, we then want to give. And then we're in this um, cycle where we feel good about ourselves and we feel good about our objects. We feel our objects feel good about us. And you get this kind of loving generosity springing from gratitude cycle going. Right. Where we're full and not operating from deprivation. Right. Mm -hmm. And that we're grateful and we want to give because we have received. Right. A very mature position. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, one that we can never sustain in an idealized way 24-7, but an aspiration. Right, right. So this has been wonderful, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm going to keep you on the line for a moment, but just to thank you for um, being here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about for our listeners and also for you um, to let you know about um, a special event that's going to be happening in New York City on January 3rd. Um, It's going to be a marathon reading of Freud's Civilization and Its Discontents. Um, The inclination to aggression constitutes the greatest impediment to civilization, is what Freud said in 1929. And we are going to be taking that up um, and doing a full marathon reading to ring in 2015. Um, There will be uh, psychoanalysts reading. There'll be actors, academics, Pulitzer Prize winners, architects, clergy, diplomats, war veterans, um, really looking at the question of human aggression and looking at the culture that we live in um, and just kind of coming to terms with that, given the kind of year 2014 has been with the intense violence and strife and um, the all the things going on in the culture. So the, very timely. Yes, very timely. Um, I wanted to read one just to to end, um, Micah Busey, who is the community minister of the arts at Judson Memorial Church, which is where we'll be having the event. Um, her quote is, I spend a lot of time trying to convince myself and others of innate human goodness, but this is meaningless without acknowledging the destructive and violent impulses we all feel. Civilization and its discontents explores what it means to be human, warts and all. In our current crisis of human destruction, we need honest exploration now more than ever. And I I think that really 
um, goes so nicely with what you've been talking to us about today, Jennifer. Um, it's lovely. Sort of, yeah. it's all of a piece. And for anyone in New York um, who would like to attend, it's free at the Judson Memorial Church, which is 55 Washington Square South between Sullivan and Thompson Street. Um, it's going to go from 2.30 to 7. It's free, and um, we will have uh, wine and food and um, a marathon reading directed professionally and uh, it should be really, really interesting. Um, If anyone is interested in learning more about that, there is a website, www.freudoutloud.com. Wow, that's great. (laughs) And with that, I think we'll say goodbye and sign off our 50-minute hour. And uh, thank you, Jennifer Kunst, for being with us today. And uh, for all the listeners, we'll see you next time. 